an update on risk map. One thing I wanted to make you aware of is you haven't made it into the map gallery room. We do have several I wish I managed all of them. You don't manage all of them? No. He manages many. <laughs> 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 state and local government projects. Um, and he's going to present today and the latest update on how houses is being used within FEMA's risk map program. We'd like to welcome Jamie. Thanks, Jamie. I've been asked to be the comic relief to uh, wake up folks, uh, someone from Region 10. So. Throughout the presentation, I will sprinkle in um, how you know you might be a HAZUS user. So, um, so show of hands, who here has crashed their machine running HAZUS? Ah, very good. So, so you have to pay attention. I'm going to be asking questions as we go through. How many folks are familiar or have heard a presentation before on RISMAP? How many folks? Okay. So about half of you, not too sure, your arm's too tired. So let me, let me start off by giving a quick overview of what RISMAP is. So FEMA has different programs they've had over the years with floodplain mapping. Many of you probably heard of the predecessor to RISMAP, which was map modernization, where they went through the process of taking paper maps and making them digital maps. I won't give commentary on whether they're making bad paper maps into bad digital maps, but they went through the process of modernizing. What RISMAP is is really the next step of taking that data and, uh, to use a buzzword-filled sentence, leveraging it to you know, enhance the world. And there's all these various, but essentially it's a program of continuing modernizing maps, but then using the data to actually help with mitigation actions and helping the public and, you know, the whole reason that we're doing the stuff that we do. So under RISMAP, one of the big new areas is not just having regulatory products. How many folks here have flood insurance? A few folks? Okay. So though most folks are familiar with the maps or familiar with the flood insurance studies, the, the things that you're required by law to make um, to, to have your insurance. What RISMAP is really doing is adding to that a suite of non-regulatory products. So the big thing that we're going to focus on here is the flood risk assessment data set, which is one of four non-regulatory data products that's going to be developed as part of RISMAP. So there's your context. There's, if, if you want more info, there's flyers, there's other things, but that just sort of sets you where we're at, that RISMAP is really this leveraging of the data that we've gathered and then trying to then use it and using HAZUS under this flood risk assessment data, excuse me, data set is one way to do that. So what I'm going to talk through in the presentation today is sort of the current framework of how this is going to work. I'm going to start with the average annualized loss study. I'm going to give you a brief, brief overview of this. Uh, Tom Schweitzer is going to come up and show you all the warts and bumps and everything else that we experienced when we worked on this. Um, so I'll give you a brief overview of that. But probably more important, 
give you the framework that RISMAP is going to take data, most of which is hazardous-based, to build this data set so that you can actually show risk assessment, you can show losses for communities. So this is one of the uh, sort of standard slides uh, when we talk about this data set of, of some of the reasons that we go about doing this. Traditionally, FEMA has been so focused on making maps that it sometimes forget, well, why did we make that map to begin with? Because there's people and houses located near the river or near the stream or near the coast. So the focus of trying to come up with loss, and, and I mean, the reason that most people run HAZUS is understanding that connection, that it's not just the hazard, it's the hazard and the people, it's the hazard and the assets. So trying to bring that out, and also looking at, notice under the second major bullet, the idea of different flood frequencies. How many certified floodplain managers do we have in the room? Some CFMs, okay. Uh, we spend our whole life, I think, under FEMA stuff, so stuck in the 100-year floodplain world, the 1% annual chance world, the base flood event world, the special flood hazard world. So we have, we have about 10 different ways we describe this thing. But other flood frequencies actually are as important and more important depending on the question you ask. A rule of thumb, one of the other jobs, I, other hats I wear is I do a lot of training for the benefit cost models that are out there. The 10-year flood tends to be a real good benchmark for whether or not you want to buy out a house or not. So if your house's first floor is at the 10-year or lower, that's a pretty good indication of whether or not you can buy it out. It's going to pass a benefit cost analysis. So traditionally, when we've done our maps, We've had this 100-year, and we've put 100-year out there because it's the insurance standard, but we have these other return frequencies that may give us info that might be even more important. And so trying to bring that out in this context is a big deal. And then the dollars, yeah, you, you all know about the dollars. Running has this, trying to get this information. So how is this data set made? We start with average annualized loss. We'll talk about that a little bit. We refine that with additional data and we come up with a composite. So the analogy, I always love using analogies, try to get away from the technical speak. So how many, how many people loved playing with Legos when you were growing up? Lego fans, okay. How many have kids right now who like playing with Legos, okay? So think about that first starter kit of Legos you got. It didn't have any of the special pieces, okay? It just had either the four by one brick Sometimes the two-by-twos, you know, and it was maybe in one or two colors. It was, it was a very simple set. And so, you, let's say you wanted to make a little house with it. So you'd start building the blocks up, and you'd make your simple little house. But you had to kind of use your imagination that it was actually a house, okay? That's kind of like our AAL, is it was a very beginning data set, your level one. We were building. But, like, let's say you wanted to put a door in it. You didn't actually have, like, that special Lego block that was the door, you know, so you kind of just made a hole where that was. And you didn't have those nice angled pieces for the roof either, you know, so it was just maybe flat or maybe just an open hole. So you, you were making what? A model. In this case, it was a model of a house. But your money was limited. You're a kid, you know, you're given, grandma gave you the Legos. So you had limited money, you had limited time. Now, was it a bad model of a house? Well... It wasn't, you know, it wasn't this beautiful, you know, Barbie doll house with all the, you know, but it was a model of limited funds, of limited time, but yet still conveyed the sense that, oh, it was a house. Well, it's kind of like our AAL. So Tom will give you a little bit more detail on, on that, but just the idea 
with limited times and funds to model something, we get to a certain point. Now, for Lego fans, did you ever get one of those fancy packs then with all the roof pieces and the doors and the wheels and all this? So then when you add that extra stuff in, that's kind of that refinement. Now, of course, the reality is to get refinement, what do you need? You need some money. Um, so in order to refine and get better data, you need these additional things added into it. So if, if you get stuck in the middle of this presentation, you're going, wait, you've just blown over my head. Think back to those Lego things of simple pack versus the more complex. And that's really what we're doing in, in, in risk map and in refining information. It's going from something simple to something more complex based on the funds that we have available. So does that mean that that little house was, was wrong or incorrect? Well, Tom's going to show you details of things that we found that when we were beating to death, how many folks again had crashed has this? I believe those of us who worked on AAL, um, I believe was a daily occurrence in some cases. Um, uh, he'll, he'll point out some of the coastal counties that really had some, had some fun things, but, uh, but that's also part of the reality of modeling. So let's dive into a couple of these things. So the AAL study, what was this? This was a level one, out-of-the-box, nationwide run for the U.S. County-based, using 30-meter DEM, or Kevin will slap my hand, so what would that be? One-third arc second one, right? Um, one arc second, so the, the, the basic stuff that you can get from the USGS. Nationwide, 10 square mile drainage for riverine, for coastal, using the built-in shorelines with it has this, and taking an average still water depth out of the FISs along the coast. So very basic, out of the box. You can see some of the results aggregated up to the state level. Results that came out of that were both the exposure numbers, also the loss numbers. That's the starting point. That's your little, simple Lego house. However, in doing that study, there was a lot of things that we knew we didn't have time and funds to do. So within RISMAP, the idea is when you do a new study, so I'm coming into an area, I'm doing a watershed-based study, I'm going to do 20 miles of new detailed mapping. James gave a great example of an early demo project of you know, a more detailed area with new mapping. When I go in and make new regulatory info, I also want to update the hazardous info for there. So I go in and I refine in those areas where I have new floodplain mapping, I refine that information that I know in that area. All right, so if you're, you're staying awake, we'll, we'll do another one here. Um, if you ever drive by a trailer park and you think, look at all of those res twos. Anyone here? Okay, all right. So, see, keeping you awake. All right, when we do this, when we bring all this data together, what are we actually storing? For risk map, we're gonna have a parallel database of non-regulatory data called the flood risk database. In there, we're gonna pull out certain hazardous files. Why don't we put the whole HPR file in there? Um, how many folks have like a separate hard drive in your office that all your HPRs live in? Anyone here? Okay, so we, that's why we don't put the whole HPR in the file. I would say this, my personal opinion is probably in a few years when your jump drive will have like the, you know, the memory capacity of every computer on the earth in 1990 or whatever, at some point the memory issues aren't gonna be that big of a problem, they still are. Having to store gigabytes of raster data and other things is not the intent of this database. The intent of the database is to have useful information as part of the way you communicate with locals and a way that you do actions. So what's gonna be stored in there? We're gonna have, James showed one of the tables earlier. We're gonna have residential loss, commercial loss. We'll still have that level of detail. 
All the other occupancy types are going to be combined down. We're going to look at structures. We're going to look at contents. But all those other loss types, you ever look at that, you know, the, that output table where you get inventory and wages and those other things? We're going to kind of smush those things down, too. So give you some of the breakdown of the data, but at the same time, not give the full suite of, of every particular output you could ever get out of Hazus. Have that information included, and then compare the exposure, what's there, the building stock, GBS, all the acronyms we all know. Um, that, that's another one. When you work for a company that's an acronym, or a program that's an acronym, for an agency that's an acronym, and you might be a Hazus user. Um, so you bring all that stuff together in the database. All right, so how does this work? So let's say we're in Ohio, and we have, I don't know if everyone's familiar, in RISMAP, the standard unit of an, a study is going to be converted from an actual community or county to a watershed, specifically what they call a Huck 8 watershed. So you can get an idea of a rough size of it. Uh, be assured, for those of you who do these, your Huck 8 will always cross um, multiple community boundaries, state boundaries, FEMA region boundaries, all those other fun things. So let's say we've got one of these Huck 8s. We come in. What was done under AAL? Well, to build data for the AAL, we started off with our county in Hazus. I think these are shots out of MR4. So we start off with our county. You, you, this is the litany now, so you can go through. Okay, we do our drainage area, you know, do our drainage delineation. Then we come in and we do the floodplain. Then we come in with our losses. So in, in 10 seconds, I showed the result of, now this is, I think this is the, is this the 100 or the 500? I think this is the 100. Um, when you do this for an annualized run and everything else, um, I think we had some counties in Texas that did fully run, but I think took two weeks to run. So now that Nikolai's made it faster, it won't be quite as long. But doing annualized runs is a challenge because you have multiple return periods. You're doing the H&H &H within Hazus. It is a challenge. I mean, it was some work. And Tom will point out to you, you know, there were some issues that did come up. So something to think about as you do new studies is if you look at what you had from AAL and some areas aren't perfect, it may make sense in a newer version of Hazus to maybe rerun your things. But this is what we got out. So we had losses at census blocks. We would bring that together within our watershed, and we would build this layer. So what is this? This is a beginning point of milling risk. Now, I get this a lot. A lot of folks, questions come up of, is AAL good? Is AAL bad? Is it? It's like that simple Lego house. It is the best model you could do with the funds and the materials available at the time that was there. Um, I always tell folks when we do modeling of any type, GIS and everything else, every sentence should end with, with the funds and time and schedule available because it's always, it's always that challenge when, when you work with computer models. You know, gee, I zoom in on that map. Um, I live in southwest Virginia, and there was a, a community along the river that got bought out. So you look in Google Earth at the photo of that site, and it's an old photo. And so they're like, I zoom in on that site, and that map's wrong. It's just, well, no, it's just old. You know, they, have to, they haven't decided to update it yet with a new photo. You know, we work with this stuff, those of us who do modeling, who GGIS. I mean, we understand the compromises of good data and bad data. Um, for those who ever took cartography classes, if you ever saw that book, how to lie with maps, you know, how to, you know. And it's, it's the challenge of trying to show a lot of information in a way that conveys the best way to do it. So is this perfect? No. 
Is this the best way to do it? But at a community-wide scale, would I be fairly confident where there's red blobs up there that I'd expect some houses to be hit? Yeah, probably. But is it the 500 that the model predicts? Eh, maybe 100, or it could be 1,000, I don't know. It gives me an idea of where to start. When I go to then do a new study, and I have additional information, so let's say I'm back at my watershed, and now I'm gonna do a brand new detailed study up here on this one reach. How am I gonna do this in Hazus? I would come in with a depth grid already created under the regulatory side. Now, since I already have Let's say it's HECRAS based. They pulled out all the bells and whistles. Who knows? They made even that unsteady flow. They do all this great stuff in there. Why in the world would I ever want to run H and H and has this? I've got good stuff coming in. So I'll take a user-defined depth grid, bring it in to a county-based model, get my losses, and then take those losses back out of Hazus and combine that in with the data I had before from AAL. So here's the analogy to think of for those who have worked with floodplain maps. When I look at a map panel, is every single stream mapped to the same level of detail? Um, big H, no. You know, it's not. You've got detailed reaches. You've got unnumbered zone A. You've got shaded. A. You've got a compromise of the best available data trying to show, in this case, flooding. What this is is that same set of choices for risk. I know I'm not gonna have the best data everywhere, but this is the composite of all those things together, trying to convey this picture out. Again, this is still census block based. It's still gonna have the limitations. We've seen probably three or four presentations today of, yeah, if I got user-defined facilities, of course I'd wanna use that. But am I always gonna have the mullet to do that? Probably not. All right, another how do you know that you're a, a hazardous user? Who has Eric, Nikolai, or Kevin on speed dial on your phone? Anyone here? Okay. So I bring this all together. So what is it going to look like when I put this in a flood risk database? I'm going to start off with average annualized loss. That's going to be one set of fields within my database. I'm going to have that for multiple return periods. I'm also going to have that for annualized. Thanks, Nikolai, wherever you are, for adding that back into 2.1. It will make life a lot easier so we don't have to do it outside of Hazus. So we're gonna have average annualized losses, individual return periods in, and annualized. For our refined area, we're also gonna have multiple return periods and annualized, and then a composite where we combine the both of them together, the best of our available data. That's then the information that's gonna be conveyed in all the various public meetings. Uh, for those who do risk map, have you memorized your meetings, discovery, resilience, all the all the terminology that's being used for that. This is the information that then has to be conveyed to the public. Uh, folks from Canada that were up earlier were showing some of those tools that can be used to convey this complex info. I'm an engineer, I'm bad at taking, I wanna, I'm gonna bludgeon you with numbers sometimes. You know, it's like, okay, 10,000 this, and you show it to 8,000 digits and everything else. Having to convey that is always still gonna be the challenge. So what are some tools, what are some ways we can try to improve things? If you have the funds, this is always the caveat, if you have the funds, you can do all sorts of extra stuff under risk map. You can do individual user-defined facilities. You can do more complex models. You can do more, but the reality is, especially with the latest budget issues that are out there, is are most projects gonna have this ability to do it? Probably not. But I would say this, for those who do risk map projects, always try to leverage what's already been done a lot of local hazard mitigation plans, 
a lot of different things out there have done these enhancements. So uh, my son recently got for Christmas a, uh, it was a Lego set and it was the, uh, one of these Harry Potter ones. This thing had more enhancements and bells and whistles than you could, I mean, so it had special roof pieces. It had the little hidden door to do the, you know, the apparatus. It had all these, I looked at it and I was like, man, if I would have had that one as a kid, I could have built the biggest and great, you know. But you got to have the funds to do it. you got to have that ability to... And you know what you find out? That those special, those really specialty kits, look, work really good when you do that. But when you add them into this regular one, oh, this works kind of out of place. So you also have to know when the enhancement makes sense. You have to know that not every project needs every bell and whistle. And sometimes you may only do an enhancement, like James' example, in just a specific spot or area in order to bring out or to answer a question. You can have all the data in the world, but if it's not aiming towards the questions you want to answer, you know, it's, it's another thesis on the shelf sort of thing. It, it needs to be useful for what you're trying to do. Okay, so for refined data, one of the things to, to watch, and I think Nikolai brought this out, is we have done a shift from having a 200-year return period to a 25. So refined data is gonna use that new setup. When you do a hazardous run, for annualized, having that data in there. Also, if you have refinement, there are ways that those can be stored in the databases. For composite, there's gonna be the requirement, because we know a lot of folks have AAL, and AAL is gonna have 200, our new one's gonna have the 25, and those things don't match up. The composite as a minimum standard is not gonna require either of those. It's only gonna have the common return periods, which incidentally are also the return periods that show up on like your FIS studies and things like that. So the, think, of the, think of the composite as a way to have a database where you can go in and get data to show what's the latest and greatest. So how is that shown in these meetings? It's kind of three different ways. At the end of a risk map study, we create a database. In that database, we have information that feeds into a report that also feeds into a map. How, so what are some of the strategies we have for leveraging and showing this information? On the map, of, of all the things that I've, I've, I think I've fought for and enjoyed winning the fight, you'll notice the map scale there. Do we have the 10,000 digits of precision when we don't really have it? No. We have very low, low, medium, high. If you want to call those things something different, if you want to do, do what is the point? I'm trying to convey to the public where you have potential high risk. Make this work for what you need it to work for. Um, at the ASFPM conference this year, I believe state of Kentucky had like an alternative, in fact, it may even be in the map gallery, an alternative way of showing this. These things aren't written in stone. Let the tool work for what you need it to be. In the report, James was showing you earlier some of the breakdowns of the information, having it sp split out by total inventory, your losses by different return periods, having this information condensed in one spot. This is still dense though, I will say. This is still, if you gave this table to someone, it would still take a level of discussion trying for, to explain to them what this is, what this means. So trying to work through the best ways of conveying this info. The other thing I'll say under risk map is at times we spend a lot of work gathering data, but we also need to make sure that things are consistent like I would expect, as the storms get worse, my losses go up. <laughs> um, there's times when you do loss analysis, that's another great thing with 2-1, 
using the same cross sections. In AAL, we saw instances where like the 200 had some issues sometimes, so it wasn't as high of a loss as the 100 and other things. Um, we're among friends. We can, we can say that in here, okay? There's times when as we build the models, as we, um, to, to take our Lego analogy, the first time you built that house, did you figure out how to do like the inner block, the blocks like a brick wall the first time? Probably not. You probably stacked them all up, you like all the twos together and all the threes. And then you realize that the thing wouldn't stay together because it wasn't the right way. Well, that's kind of with AAL. When we tested things the first time and we really were pounding it through with lots of, it worked great in certain areas. Like where I live in the mountains in Virginia, it almost never blew up. We had those nice narrow valleys. We had gauged rivers or we had good regression equations. It worked great there, but then you get in some other areas where you may not have all the ideal conditions. And, you know, somewhere in the back of the house, you might have had to put one of those, like, two-by-three blocks kind of inside because it wasn't quite the right fit type of thing. Um, so messaging and working is, is always a challenge with this. So I think to, to wrap up under risk map, where are we at? Right now, the final set of initial guidance for risk map of how to do what I just showed is going through... I believe it's executive review. Uh, the two appendices, that there's standards for doing risk map, for doing regulatory and non-regulatory. The two that are being created right now are Appendix N and Appendix O. Um, so don't think of no, just think of N and O. N gives you the methodology information. O gives you the database standards info. So for those that are going to work in risk map and afterwards you're going, now how can I get the details of how to do this? Appendix N and Appendix O will be the place for that. Um, it went through a public comment period back over the summer. It's going through final changes now. The goal is to have this out for everyone to begin using in September. The thing to remember, though, is that most of what's in there has this related is probably MR4, MR5 vintage info. Some of it is a little dated, obviously. It's not going to have 2.1 referred to. Even some things in 2.0 it's, you know, so it's as bad, as, as tough as it is for the Hazus developers to keep up with things, then these regs have to also then follow the Hazus versions. And so there's always going to be a little bit of a lag. So as you start, for those who do these projects, as you start to look at that guidance information, if you have questions, I say send that through your regions or through headquarters to get some guidance on things. Tom will talk about some of the things that we found in AAL. In that data, and as you use it, that also is um, some policy that's still being established of how to transmit and, and distribute that AAL data as well. So we've got a good start. We've got a lot of information gathered. The next step now is to start really doing this in projects. Hopefully the budgets will, will loosen up a little bit so we actually can do projects. Um, other issues haven't been addressed yet. One thing that's not up here is levies. That's still to be established. Um, there's also some initiatives right now to have more refined information about doing coastal areas where you may not have from the regulatory side all the return periods like you do with, with riverine. Also areas with dams. How do you convey that and show that information? So this is a beginning step, but it's gonna be, there's going to be a lot of special cases where we're going to still need additional refinement and guidance of how to do these things within RISMAP. So thanks a lot.
Margaret switches the presentation. I'll go ahead and um, introduce Tom Schweitzer. He's the uh, vice president with Atkins. He's got 11 years of experience with um, floodplain mapping and working with the National Flood Insurance Program. And he's going to give us um, some more information about the um, AAL study. And he's also going to give us a summary of the ARC usability analysis of the AAL study. Just a second, we'll have Tom up. We could take a question for um, Shane while we wait. If you want. Does anybody have a, a question? Appreciate the legos as well. Yeah, <laughs> you brought it down to a level that made sense. <laughs> just for the record, I never had the flashy ones, only just the house. <laughs> yeah, my boys have the flashy ones. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Well, I'll try to tie in the legos with, uh, with mine a little bit here. I think that's a good analogy. Is, uh, I did start with the real blocky ones when I was a kid, so... Uh, I didn't get the Star War ones until my kids were around. So, uh, so the AAL study, um, it was completed last year, uh, beginning of the year. Um, we used the MR4 uh, bill, which is actually a, a good bill to use at that point. Had a lot of new stuff in it for us. The losses were uh, the 48 contiguous um, states in the district. The reason we didn't do Alaska is because we didn't have topo. And uh, I think we didn't have regression equations for Puerto Rico. So we stayed on the mainland. Uh, Again, I think some of the stuff that um, Shane covered here, the 10 to 50, the 100 to 200, 500, um, and then we used the AAL analysis. Uh, when we got finished, um, the number was fairly large, and we kind of were wondering why it was so big. Um, it, was, it was a big number. We said, well, this is really right. Does this sound right? So we looked at the 100-year returns and said, oh, we're not too sure about this. So we took a little closer look, and... Um, Really, the houses had not been run through the paces like we put it through the paces. Um, we ran every county, and we ran many counties. Um, and some of the bigger counties, like uh, Shane alluded to, took quite a long time. And in fact, we had to break them up into smaller units, like San Bernardino County, things like that, to actually get them to run. And then we compiled them back up into a single. Um, so we looked at that, and we, we noticed that there's a... Uh, that the two and the five year return period um, gave us a large number. And so we said, well, is that the only thing out there that's gonna, that's changing these numbers and making them larger than we thought? So we decided to do a usability analysis. And so we completed it this past uh, spring. Um, and when we did this, we decided, well, what else is out there that maybe we can wholesale change or find a variable that we can change for everything, um, like the two and the five. And so we decided to break down uh, this analysis to understand what Hazus was doing in the background, what were the constraints um, of that, and is there any way to, to change those without having to rerun everything again using the results. And again, is this usable for risk map and to what level uh, can this be used to risk map? So these are the items that we looked at. Um, run period, the runtime issues basically were the software not behaving, either crashing or giving you some kind of error or not running through, or running through and not giving you an answer. 
Um, the drainage area, we use 10 square miles. Should we use one, five? Uh, the topographic of the slope, was there something in there that we could see where, if it was really flat or if it was really steep, did it give you a better answer? And we looked at the depth grids. And then the coastal as well, because the coastal, um, it's a different uh, problem than the riverine. Uh, we use the still water elevations there. And then you have the coastline and then you also have the interaction of the riverine and the, the coastal together. And then the loss calculation and the AF calculation. Um, additionally, there had been studies done out there by different communities that looked at a level two compared to a level one, mostly with building stocks. So we, we did a review of those as well. So the runtime issues, first thing we looked at was the 10 square miles. And so we performed analysis uh, with 10 counties, and we ran it for five square miles and one square mile. And we put that just for the reach delineation. We didn't really look at the losses. So what we found, um, basically, when we did the hydrology, we, we weren't too bad. Um, but when we got down to the hydraulics, um, it became apparent that there was a lot of issues uh, with this. So as you can see here, when we ran it for the five square miles, we only have six out of 10 counties actually completed properly. And with the one square mile, it was only three. And not only did it didn't run, it actually took up to 10 to 15 times longer because of the number of reaches. As you got higher and higher in your reaches, um, the time that it took, I wouldn't say it's exponential, but it, it in some cases seemed to be exponential as you were waiting for the computer. So, we felt that the 10 square mile was actually the appropriate size for the resources we had, like, like Shane was saying, it's about money and time. And based on what we had and when we had to deliver this, it was, uh, we felt the 10 square miles was appropriate. <clears throat> and then we had the failed reaches and problem reaches. And I'm sure you guys have run into this quite a bit. Um, and what we decided was we would rerun these uh, calculations until we tried to get it down to a, a reasonable level. Uh, but then we tried to look to see what really was causing these issues, and it, it really depends. It could be the regression equations, could have been gauges, could have been null values in your topo, something like that. So we really didn't find anything that was really specific to that, but we, we knew it was a problem. One of the other issues we had actually wasn't when we ran the AA analysis, was when we went back to, to, to do the usability analysis, we pulled the information back in for the coastal. What we found was that we had a hard time pulling all that information back into the HPR and actually running that. Um, and that was due to the size of the data sets um, and the constraints on the, the size of the database you can use um, four megabytes, I mean four gigabytes. Um, so this is the issue we have. We actually couldn't get a lot of them to actually come back into the analysis with the regular database. So we had to use a SQL the SQL database to actually run that. And that's an issue if you're running Hazus and you've got to go out and get the, the full-on MS SQL, and if you're not, if you don't have the money or you don't have the uh, expertise to run that, that's an issue. So hopefully this will be cleared up also too, well, now that the, uh, the SQL, the Express is now up to eight uh, gigabytes per file, so that's good. So one of the other things we looked at is actually, what is the 30-meter dam doing to our, to our data? Um, how is it affecting our, our answers and, and what we're developing? Um, so initially did the AAL. We actually took 40 counties, and we did the overlay of the NFHL data, 
against their AAL data as far as the flood delineations. Um, what we found was there was no correlations. We had it, it was all over the board. The match was 20% or it could be less. And some of that had to do with the fact that the existing NFHL wasn't watershed based. Uh, you had holes from communities, things like that. So we weren't really able to find out if it was an issue with the hazard delineation or just the way the NFHL was made up and where it was, um, where we had data for the NFHL and where we didn't have data. So what we did is we took all the counties that we had for NFHL and we did a comparison. Um, and basically, we sort of came up with the same answer. It was really all over the place, um, whether it matched or not. So this is what it looked like when we were doing our analysis. And so we would look at the percentage of overlap from the NFHL and got percentages for that. And basically, it was pretty much um, a situation where it depended on where you were. For instance, uh, if you see in the middle here, there's a lake, and you can see that the AAL went straight across the lake. So we found out that in areas with uh, a lot of lakes, Hazus was putting that reach through the lake. And if it was in the center of the lake like this, you'd get more like a river. And if it was on the edge of a lake, you might get half the lake show up as the floodplain. So the issue was some of the, uh, the lake issues there. And so we looked at the topography. Was it a steep topography, medium topography, or flat topography? How did that work into whether Hazus was actually giving you correct information? So what we did is, this is a picture of, um, we took the points within NFHL and the points that are in the AAL delineations, and we buffered them by 100 feet, and we did this intersect to see how close um, they were to each other. And so, so here's some of the, the information we came up with. As you can see, it's kind of all over the place. Um, but we found that in some of the more well-defined areas that Shane talked about too, like uh, if you have areas of well-defined valleys, medium slope, Hazus does a really good job. It matches up pretty good. It may be le left or right a little bit because you're using the 30 meter down and you have that 30 meter horizontal accuracy issue. Uh, but in general, they, they matched up pretty good. Um, but you still had issues with those, those vertices not matching up uh, quite right. So here's an example of a, a more steeper valley, a well-defined valley. As you can see, it, it matches up pretty great, but you have with the Hazus, you have some issues with the 30-meter dam where you may have flat spots where they didn't do connectivity um, between the different pieces of the floodplain. Next, what we did is we took um, the information. So that was the horizontal alignments. How did they align up horizontally? Then we looked at the depth grids to see if we had an issue with the depth grids. You know, what was the depth of flooding? Because that's how you do your, your analysis for your, your losses. So what we did is we took the NFHL and we intersected it with the dam. And based on an intersection, we gave that elevation to the the floodplain, and then we intersected that with the surface dam, and that's how we got our depths. The reason we did that, it was just too much effort to try to go back and, and uh, find out uh, where we had cross sections to get elevations, so we derived that intersection um, 
based on the fact that we had to do it rapidly for a lot of different areas. So when we did an intersection and we compared the depth grids to the AAL, this is what we came up with. As you can see, it's kind of 50-50 uh, as far as above or below. Uh, again, some of this has to do with horizontal as well as vertical. And we looked at coastal. Again, the split's not too bad, 50-50 as far as above or below. And so this is sort of what it looked like when we started to graph these and check these, take a look at this. This was actually very nice where horizontally it lined up pretty well. But other times they didn't line up very, very well horizontally. You'd have this AAL would be skewed to one side and, and the NHL to the other side. Then we took a look at coastal. Some of the things we looked at coastal was uh, the overlap. Um, in the losses. So when Hazus does this, it does the coastal independent from the riverine, and when you look at that, there's an overlap in that area, and I'll show you a, a picture of that as we go first. Also, the, the, the flooding source selection, and then we use the 100 water still level out of the FISs for this, uh, so it probably um, was probably less as far as uh, the wave action and things like that that you might, might expect. So when we looked at the AAL and we looked at, it generates the riverine and generates the coastal. This is the, uh, the overlap that you're seeing between the different ones. And you can see here in New York, um, this was an area where it actually didn't generate um, the hazard in a certain area. So when you get the overlap, you're, you're missing that whole area. Um, so if you're missing areas, the data is going to be skewed quite a bit. Um, also, we had issues with the fact that we're using the coastline, uh, the natural coastline, versus what may have been a real detailed coastline in a coastal study. So here's the overlap. As you can see, the, um, the overlap there in the center is you're running a riverine, and then you've got the, the red there for the coast. And, it also brings up another issue that um, Shane did this, the coastal stuff, we were just talking briefly before, is that if you're right in that area there, we have the overlap um, as you're coming down, you actually do have a higher risk. You've got the coastal risk and the riverine risk. So it's, uh, your risk is higher, but is your loss is higher? Because you're going to double count those losses when, it, when you total those up into, in hazards. So we have to look at a way to make sure that uh, that overlap is properly counted when you're looking at like an annual loss return. And then again, we took the NHL just like we had done with the Riverine and intersected those. Um, and actually, this was a little bit better along the coast in many situations compared to what it was uh, for the Riverine areas. So if you, summary of that, we had 16 counties, and again, the, the, uh, the variance was, um, as you saw, was, was quite a bit. Um, but it really depends on the uniqueness of the, uh, the coastline and whether you have riverine um, in those areas and how extensive the, uh, the, uh, uh, the modeling was for either AAL or the NFHL. 
So the question is, is it really double counting these situations? One of the big issues that, that we believe was an issue here was the fact that the using the census block, you don't know where the houses are. So a lot of these people have done these presentations um, have shown that, you know, in many cases you're over overcounting uh, the losses due to the fact you don't know where the houses are. Um, so in this case, we instead of doing uh, all this analysis ourselves, we went into non-existing studies that were out there, and we read those and, and took a look at what their analysis showed. And all the, all the studies uh, showed a difference compared to what the houses had. Um, in five of those studies, um, the overestimation losses compared to what we had in the default. So, so the default was really showing a lot more losses than the specified when you get down to those, uh, the GBC when you update those. So we believe that, you know, if we get down to the, uh, away from the, the census block and just use the structures, we're going to have a much higher accuracy for the losses. One of the final ones we look at again was the re return periods and the AAL calculation. Okay, I'm missing the graph. Okay. What you can't see here is this was the graph of the losses in the return periods. Um, and basically the, the block, blue block is showing is that 60% of the losses were between the two and the five year of the losses. So you would have a, a scale going up this direction showing that the losses for the higher return periods and then the losses going down to the, the two and the five to the, to the right there. Not sure why that didn't show up. So we removed the two and the five year and, came, and we did this outside of the, the HPRs. Uh, so that brings up a point about the HPRs for the AAL. Um, we extracted the data out of those and then we removed the two and the five. So really HPRs are the data that the losses that are in those is not the same as we're using now for, for the AAL mapping. Um, so really, they, you can use that to extract data from those, but to use those would, would give you a different AAL return. Uh, so we've decided not to give out the HPRs, but we'll be giving out the data that's extracted out there to use for that. <clears throat> so we reduced the, uh, the two and the five. We came down to 54 to $55 billion annualized losses. And this is where we believe this is high from all those reasons that we showed you through here that that's still a high analysis. But again, it is, it's a complete nationwide analysis. It's the big Lego box that we have. So uh, we believe it's a, an appropriate use of, uh, of the data for discovery and to starting the national uh, risk uh, layer for losses. The other issue that we had was with the cross-sections. And has this uh, back in MR4 generated a cross-section for each return period. And when it did it, it used a different variable. It based it on the width that it needed to represent the flooding. And in doing so, it used a little bit different calculation and it may have placed the cross-section in a little bit different orientation and a different location. So we found, and we looked back at the different years, the 100 year, the 200, the 500 year specifically, 
we found places where the 500-year losses were less than the 100-year losses. So when we started examining the cross-sections, we found that the cross-sections in some areas, it didn't place a cross-section in the same place or same orientation. And in some cases, it didn't even put a cross-section in a location. It doubled up the cross-section further down the stream. Uh, sometimes it even overlapped the cross-sections, and so we know that that's not uh, appropriate. Uh, so we took a look at that. It wasn't a major issue, but it was, it was systemic through the whole project. So that was one of the things uh, that we brought up and the changes being made to go to one cross-section. So in summary, uh, the only data set that we had that was a national data set uh, that was consistent uh, was the 30-meter dam. So we believe that, that that was the appropriate method to use uh, for this study. Uh, again, the census data, same thing. It's the national data set, and we believe that it's appropriate to use that for this kind of study as a beginning, uh, rather than waiting for uh, houses or, or parcel data at a national level. And then based on the, the information we ran with the five and the, the, the one year, I mean the one uh, square mile, it would have been too extensive an effort in, uh, in, from resources and uh, computing time to try to do anything less than a 10 square mile, even though a lot of the national flood hazard layer is done at a one square mile. Again, we didn't see a huge issue with the doubling of the counting of losses in the coastal area, but it is an issue that needs to be addressed and looked at closely uh, when we go forward with our risk map. Uh, again, the two and the five has been taken out, as you heard earlier, and again, the one cross-section for all return periods. So as we went through all of this information, um, we were able to go back and to the hazardous development team and get a lot of these changes to the, the modeling techniques and to, to make the product a lot better. Um, and looking at the data, uh, we believe that it is appropriate at the scale uh, to use for discovery meetings and sequencing and going forward is building the, the risk layer for the nation. Uh, so it's, it's really important when talking about how we're going to use this data, we're going to be using it at a relative if you've seen the maps that Shane has produced and other people have produced, you don't see any numbers. You don't see 5 million, 10 million, 200,000 for any of the blocks. What you see is that thematic mapping, and that's the important thing, that this data should be used at that level. So going forward, is if, you, if you're using this data for discovery or other projects, to understand that that's the important thing that you're showing. You're showing that relative risk out there. Um, but as you go forward and you get better data, that's when that data can be used to really uh, show what the risk level may be uh, within those smaller areas. Any questions or answers? Is your data available to, at the level to Yes, we'll be, uh, all the PTS have this information. Uh, they can give out to the CTP partners, states, and, and people doing the risk map uh, work. It's at the census block level, um, but again, it's really to be shared out only at that relative level. So we, if we do have this data using it, we'd like you to use it as, as such that. We don't want you giving out tables with all the loss information because, as we know, it's, it's not that accurate for a single census block. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that brings up another point. Currently, right now, we do not have a way that we're going to store this. We're trying to develop a way to store this. Uh, we're working with FEMA on trying to find out where we're going to post this data, how do you get it down, how do you update it. From a risk map project standpoint, you'll be able to do that as part of your project. And how that gets back into the master database and how that is stored, we're still working that at this point. But if you do, as soon as we do come up with that method, we'd love to have your data back. Yeah, stay in touch with the region, yeah. We did find some places where we, we didn't go into detail looking at the regression equations, but we did find in certain situations where it was more of an urban regression equation and it wasn't working for the whole county. Um, so we did have that situation um, where it, it didn't seem to work for the whole county. Um, so when going forward, I mean, that's a kind of the thing we looked at maybe do we have you know, you get to pick a, a variable, and that we got the Manning's end now. Do you do you pick your regression equation as well? Um, that's been discussed as well as possibly maybe doing something like that. It's being fixed. So what happened is, is if you were to, I didn't have a picture of it, but if you were to look at the cross section, so you have got one coming down this way and it bends to the right and then comes across the river and it bends to the, comes back to the, if you look at each, each return period, it was only getting as wide as it needed to get. So your widest one would be the, fi the 500 year. Um, and the reason they did that is they thought, well, you know, it'd be easier if you just want to run a 100 year, you didn't have to worry about the cross section for the 500 year because that would take a little bit longer. So when the first coded this, they said, well, if it's a smaller cross-section, it'll really run faster. So if you ran the, the next return period, it may bend in a different direction. So it's going to bend off to the right versus the other cross-section was to the left. And so you're going to get a different area and possibly a different depth in that area. Um, and so if you looked at the cross-sections, they didn't lay on top of each other nicely, especially as you got into flatter areas. The flatter the area, the more divergence you had in the cross sections. The steeper areas, they, they matched very nice because you had nice clean uh, walls, um, valley walls, and they matched up really nice. So what happened is you actually had a different floodplain. So if the floodplain touched maybe a corner of a census block for the 500 year, and for the 100 year, it covered the whole thing. Um, so you had this difference in the losses because we have that other layer under there, that census block, and it's very spatially sensitive about where that floodplain is. And so that we ended up actually with different floodplains for different return periods where one was even, so the 500 would be smaller than the 100 year in certain areas. And so when we looked at that, we said, we know that's not right. That can't be. And we looked at it, and it was because of the cross sections. So that was the issue. It's an iterative process to develop the cross sections because um, it needs to be wide enough, but not too wide. So how will you choose which one to use throughout the 
it will only develop one. It will go to the it will go to the farthest extent for 500, and it'll use that one for every return period. So it may take a little bit longer, and, and I know that it runs the whole process runs faster now. So you may not see any difference in the speed of that, but it'll go all the way out to the widest floodplain that it thinks it needs, and then it'll run that for for the 10, the 25, the 50, the 100. So this way, it'll be much it'll be a lot more consistency in, in that in that area. More questions? Right. Thank you.